Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. about how um, it feels like people are um, settling in and have arrived. <clears throat> the magical third day, although maybe you're waiting for the magical fourth day. <laughs> I didn't say it was going to get uh, pleasant, I just uh, said it. You get settled in, and now you're here for the ride. It, I, and I can feel the room is, is really um, quite a bit stiller than when you first got here. And uh, now that you've landed, <clears throat> uh, there's uh, we can go a bit deeper into things and and understand that it, it's not about arriving any one place, it's, it's being here for this ride, for this, for facing life uh, just as it is, whether it's beautiful or challenging or anything in between. And I thought tonight um, I would give uh, the basic talk that the Buddha gave in one form or another throughout his 45-year career uh, sharing the Dharma, uh, and that is uh, the Four Noble Truths. And you might say, some of you, oh, I know that one. I've heard that one before. Mm-hmm. And for some people, maybe you haven't, and particularly if you haven't, um, I'm so happy that I can introduce you to these truths. But if you had heard it, have heard it before and know it well, take it uh, as if you're hearing it for the first time. Because it is said that one form or another uh, all of the Buddhist talks from the, the time he was enlightened until uh, he passed away at 85, at 80 I should say, were uh, one form or another communicating what he discovered under the, the Bodhi tree that night. And it's said that there's a process in practice first of hearing these truths and then uh, understanding them and then uh, realizing them for oneself and then being, embodying these truths. So uh, there's 
still something that I get every time I reflect on them for myself and hope you can um, find them useful, particularly in the context of your practice as you're, uh, as you're going through this process uh, for yourself. It's said that he um, <coughs> came to realize these truths uh, after sitting under the Bodhi tree. Um, some uh, put it as the, the full moon in May in the Theravadan uh, tradition uh, at the age of 35. And after he discovered them, after he realized them, um, he was in such <coughs> peace and freedom and bliss that he um, spent, it said, about seven weeks just enjoying the fruits of that mind that was free and liberated. Mm. Must have been a pretty good understanding. <laughs> and he wasn't so um, quick to share or teach them. And actually, it's said when he thought about it, thought about sharing them, uh, he thought, this is so profound, this is so deep, this is so much against the grain of how people are in the world, that if I set out to share this, uh, people would not understand it, and it would be a great vexation to me if I shared it and others could not get it. So at first he was saying, oh, I don't know if I want to go to that trouble. <clears throat> But as the, the story goes, um, a, uh, a deva said, look, came down, and you can take this on whatever metaphorical level uh, you want, and said to the Buddha, um, who at that point became the Buddha, the word Buddha means just one who has awakened, and said, take a look. You have very great powers of mind now. And he had developed uh, some absorption uh, practices where one can do some very um, uh, amazing things with the mind. And, and he was asked, take a look and see if there are those who can see what, and understand what you have, under, have discovered. And he looked around the world with this eye and first he saw that everybody wanted to be happy and everybody was doing exactly the things that were leading to more suffering. And then he took a look and saw that there were many, as the saying, the phrase goes, with but a little dust covering their eye. And if they could understand that they had the potential, if they could be exposed to what he saw and understand what he saw, that that dust 
would be removed and they too could understand and awaken in the same way that he did. And so he was moved out of compassion to share the teachings and share these four noble truths. And I, I always think it's, it's worth just reflecting on that at first he wasn't so sure. Now this is the Buddha who we might think is perfect and has all divine knowing and can see everything, but at first he didn't know. Well, I don't know. And then he reflected a little bit more deeply, and when he saw that possibility, he was moved by compassion to share. He wasn't going for the glory, that's for sure. He wanted to just sit there under the tree for, <laughs> for a long time. He said, yes, this is, it feels so wholesome and in line with the truth <coughs> that he then spent the next 45 years of his life sharing. And I am very grateful that he did. And look at the millions, the billions of people who've been touched by what he discovered. So here are the four noble truths. The first truth, there is suffering in life. The word, as probably all of you are familiar with, I've used it here a few times, is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, dukkha. There's a kind of onomatopoeic sound to it, you know, that it sounds like, like it is, you know. I've got a lot of dukkha right now. <laughs> 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 and it's usually translated as suffering, but there are other, other words that also um, point to uh, what this word means. <coughs> One is uh, unsatisfactoriness, a quality of unsatisfactoriness in life, a quality of unreliability, stress is often used literally to define dukkha. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, one of the, the premier translators, um, uses stress as a word for, um, as the uh, definition of, of dukkha. And now we have all of these mindfulness-based stress reduction programs. It's really dukkha reduction. <laughs> and it's important to keep in mind that's where, uh, that's where the, the deep power is. Not just in reducing some stress, but the Buddha taught because he wanted to offer something to eliminate dukkha. Now, sometimes people hear that first noble truth or they think the first noble truth is life is suffering. He didn't say life is suffering. He said there is suffering in life. All of life is not suffering. 
there's love, there's compassion, there's liberation, there's goodness, there's joy, there's beauty, there's nature, there's the mystery of, of how everything is in balance. But there is suffering in life. And he said, the more you can come to terms with this fact, the more you can come to the end of suffering. And when asked what he taught, he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. Kind of sounds like a depressing way to start a teaching. They are suffering in life. For some, whoa, that's kind of heavy. But for many people, they say, ah, someone's finally telling the truth. There is suffering. And if he stopped at that first noble truth, it would be a kind of gloomy, depressing picture. Yeah, they're suffering. Good luck. <coughs> but he wanted us to understand this so we can see the possibilities of freeing the heart of suffering, of this unsatisfactoriness. So what kind of dukkha is there? There is physical dukkha, the body becomes old, the body becomes sick, the body dies. That's just part of this package. And as perhaps you know, he was motivated to leave the palace because he saw for the first time it registered as he realized that on an unannounced journey and seeing that someone old, sick, and then a corpse, that everyone is subject to that. That was what motivated him. And the fourth, what are called heavenly messengers, sent from the heavens to wake up the prince, seeing somebody who has given up the worldly um, search for happiness and renounced the world and uh, was on the, an ascetic path. And so that becomes a wake-up call. That is the wake-up call. Suffering wakes us up. So when we, we are willing to look at it, even though it's a difficult thing, suffering is what allows us to, uh, to be shaken out of our complacency. Mm. I, I don't think I asked it here, I asked it in Melbourne. Uh, there's, there's one teaching where he says, suffering can lead to faith. Faith can lead to joy, to gladness, which can lead to joy, which can lead to happiness and contentment and peace all the way to the highest states of liberation. You think, suffering leading to faith? <clears throat> but, and I ask this in Melbourne, I'll ask it here, if you've been motivated by suffering in your life 
to look for deeper meanings and deeper understanding and that helped you on your spiritual journey. Just think for a moment. If suffering has been a, uh, uh, an important catalyst in your, in your looking, just raise your hand. Take a look around. That's how it works. It can. It doesn't necessarily, in that teaching, it's suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Doesn't necessarily. Suffering can also lead to bitterness, can lead to despair, can lead to fear, isolation, confusion. But if one is fortunate enough to be exposed to teachings that show how to process and understand about suffering, this can lead to freedom. So there's physical suffering that we go through. There is certainly suffering in our world. You just open up the newspaper and it's a catalog of suffering from wars, people killing each other over different views and ideas. There is disease. There is cruelty. We often don't like to take a look at that. We can take a look at the newspaper in just a little bit, uh, unless we kind of get fascinated by it. But we, we put, at least in, uh, in the West, uh, and I don't know how it is in Australia, but uh, when people become very old, you know, we put them, uh, often can, unless we're, we, we are um, moved by compassion and res- responsibility, put them away in, in um, assisted living. And sometimes uh, I've, been, I've been working with, uh, with aging uh, and illness in the last couple of years in a program that I lead. And uh, it, it's, so, uh, it's so sad, some of the conditions in, uh, in those places for the elderly or when somebody dies, uh, often we dress them up like they're going to a, you know, a party. And, oh, doesn't Aunt Harriet look beautiful? And it's nice to remember in that, in that way. But um, we, we don't like to look at suffering. So there's that kind of dukkha. Then there's the dukkha that comes from uh, the mental suffering that comes uh, when we don't get what we want. That's certainly not fun. Then there's the kind of suffering that comes when we get just what we want and it doesn't quite do it for us. We're so sure when I get that, I'm going to be happy. And then we get it and after a while, it changes. So this is the first truth, and the reason, the basis, the underlying basis for this first truth (coughs) is that everything is impermanent. And because it's impermanent, 
there's no lasting, reliable happiness. So the body is subject to that impermanence. The mind is subject to impermanence. And because whatever it is we are wanting (coughs) when we get it, it too, the novelty, the hit of pleasure, or the actual object after a while changes. So that's the first truth. There is suffering in life. The truth of dukkha. Then he went on to explore what is the cause of our (coughs) dukkha, of our mental anguish. And he saw that really our mental anguish is where the pain is. Yeah, there's physical pain, absolutely. But as he saw for himself, and he he had done a lot of practices where the mind could be trained, uh, even in the midst of pain, so that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to disturb the heart. But when the mind isn't trained, it is prey to this anguish, this wanting, this wanting things to be different than the way they are or wanting them to, change, to stay the way they are. And this is the second truth. The cause of suffering is attachment. Sometimes it's translated, the cause of suffering is desire. But that's not actually, I think, the best translation because desire doesn't necessarily have to be um, leading to suffering. Desire, there can be very healthy desires. And in, uh, in the Pali teaching, there's, uh, there's a, a separating out between unhealthy desires, and the word tanha is used. Tanha means thirst this unquenchable thirst, this craving, and another kind of desire, chanda, which is a healthy desire. There are lots of healthy desires that we have. The thought of coming, having desire to come on a, a week-long retreat or four-day retreat, I think that's a good desire. Or the desire to Uh, to be uh, as compassionate and loving a person as you can. That's a healthy desire. Or the desire to um, develop whatever gifts you've been given, whether it's being a really um, good listener, or a really uh, talented singer or artist, or a good writer, or a wonderful parent, Those are all very healthy desires. They can be healthy desires. Of course, any desire can turn from chanda into tanha. Even the desire to become enlightened, it can have a very wholesome motivation, but even that can lead to a lot of dukkha when it becomes a craving and a grasping and a wanting for something that's not quite here. So, 
I'll spend just a little, uh, uh, I'll spend more time with this second noble truth and explore uh, just how it operates so we can uh, get a sense both here in retreat and in our lives. Really, the essence of this wanting, this attachment, its attachment to our desires, uh, can really be summed up as the wanting mind. The mind that wants, that craves, that grasps. And this wanting mind has lots of different ways that it can hook us. It's not that it's bad to want, but if we don't see clearly, it leads to suffering. And I'll give you um, an example to uh, illustrate how this wanting mind works in a, you know, a mundane way, practical way, in perhaps in your life. And the example that uh, I like to use is just imagine that you're um, at home uh, enjoying a very uh, comfortable evening and curled up with a, a good book. Right? <clears throat> you know that feeling? <coughs> Anybody reading a good book here? Not right now, but <laughs> any who's reading a good book in their life? Okay. So now, just if I trigger that off, say, "Oh, I can't wait to go back." <laughs> but there you are, reading enjoyable book or whatever it is that you enjoy at home. And that's a pretty benign one. And then all of a sudden the thought comes to you, ice cream. I could go for some ice cream now. Mm-hmm. And if you don't eat ice cream, you can substitute whatever does it for you. <clears throat> for me, ice cream does. <laughs> and all of a sudden the book is not quite as compelling. <laughs> and you uh, go to the fridge, Check it out. No, there's nothing there. If the desire is really strong, you have a mission. <laughs> Maybe you put on your jacket, and and now, oh yeah, it's it's summer here in Australia. <clears throat> so go to the ice cream parlor. You know, maybe walk there or drive there, whatever. If you were on your way and somebody stopped and said, Hi, how are you doing? and engaged in the conversation, you might be polite, but um, <laughs> thank you, I've got a mission. <laughs> then you go to the ice cream parlor. Even if you've ordered your favorite flavor and it's right in your hand, that's not going to do it. (laughs) There you have your Jamocha almond fudge, whatever (laughs) it is, and it's in your hand. It's not complete yet. If somebody came and knocked it out, (laughs) okay, time to go home. No, that much more tension until (laughs) finally. (laughs) That is so good. (sighs) 
It's true. It is good. I've been giving this talk for a long time, and I pay attention to that first lick. <laughs> but then if you notice what happens after a few licks, three, four, five licks, you might start to be checking out the scene there, who's there, how did I get here? <laughs> I'm on a diet. <laughs> and you're not there for the ice cream you know, until the last lick. <laughs> you ever notice that? And it's the, whoop, almost gone. Let's be here for this. <laughs> so good. Now, it's true that that ice cream tastes delicious. But why it particularly is so gratifying is that that first lick was the end of desire. The fourth and fifth was exactly the same ice cream, but it didn't quite do it like the first one did it. Because the desire had ended. And then, maybe the last one you're there for, but when it's over, then what? Hmm. Well, you know that feeling of kind of cotton mouth, dry mouth? Hmm. I could go for a glass of water. And so you drink a glass of water. Hmm. Now I'm a little bit bloated from all of that ice cream. I think I need to walk this off. And you walk it off. Now I'm kind of tired from all that walking. And what I really need to do is lie down and just rest. And if you look at how it works, we are continually manufacturing desires because it feels so good to have that desire gratified. We get hooked in thinking life is about creating a desire and then having it gratified. And so, if I keep on manufacturing <coughs> desires and have them fulfilled, and if I put them close enough together <laughs> so that there's no gaps, I've won. Real happiness. And so, if you take a look, you see people are continually manufacturing, what's the next thing that will make me feel good? And look throughout your day. Here it's a little bit more, a little bit more structured, uh, quite a bit more structured, where um, there's the bell ends the sitting. Oh, walking, that's what's happening. The bell ends for walking. Oh, sitting, that's what's happening. The big hit is lunch. <laughs> Let's be realistic, huh? So it's a lot different here, but if you look at your life, and probably even here, um, if you look at your life, notice how almost everything you do is um, governed by what will make me feel better, or what will make me feel less worse. Now, this is not bad. Actually, there's something really... Um, wholesome in it as I, I explore because there's something in you that is really wishing 
for well-being and happiness. So that's a, 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 a good kind of wiring up. We really do want to be happy. We just don't understand where real happiness lies. But it's not so much in getting every desire gratified, it's in having the desire end. As an alternate, alternate scenario, just to give you another uh, way of seeing this, suppose there you are reading the book and you have a thought of ice cream and on the way to the refrigerator the telephone rings and it interrupts your, <coughs> your journey and you answer the phone and it's somebody that you haven't spoken to in a long time. And you're really happy to hear from them. Hi, oh, how you doing? And you have a lovely conversation, hang up the phone, press the phone, <laughs> and you forget about the thought of ice cream. Go back to your book, enjoy your evening, you probably aren't going to wake up the next morning saying, darn, I didn't get my ice cream. Maybe you will. <laughs> but, but in the morning, it's not quite the same as late evening. <laughs> morning, you're ready for cereal and eggs. and you know. It's over. It's gone. And you weren't deprived. You weren't feeling bereft because that desire ended. It was no longer pulling you along and giving you a sense of incompleteness and off balance. So the Buddha said, take a look at how this wanting mind works. It is the cause of our mental anguish. Wanting things to be different than they are or wanting them to stay when they're impermanent, you are setting yourself up for suffering. And he spoke of a few different areas where in particular this wanting, this tanha, uh, could be explored and investigated. Four particular areas. First area is that around sense pleasure, sense desire. He said, we are driven by the next sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch that will bring us a bit of pleasure. And it's kind of fascinating how we're wired up that way. I mean, there it is. We have um, a delicious meal. And we maybe spend a lot of time preparing that meal or spending good money. Oh, we're going to go out to this restaurant. And I'm all for eating good food, and by the way, the food has been really made with so much love and so much uh, care and skill, um, so thanks to Anton. Mm -hmm. So I hope you're there for it, right? <laughs> but 
think of the most delicious meal you've had, your favorite restaurant, or wherever. Where is it now? It's gone. It was good for that moment, that evening, gone. Think of the sweetest, most delicious sensual massage. And I like massages. Where is it now? Gone. Think of whatever it is that has brought you great pleasure. How wonderful that we can experience that. But it comes and then it goes. And then the mind says, what's the next thing that could do it for me? But this is a continual, futile endeavor. What's the next thing? There's a, I'm remembering, actually, I haven't told this story in a while, but I used to tell it on, on retreats, uh, of um, Mullah Nasruddin, uh, the Sufi figure, uh, wise man, fool, eccentric, and uh, uh, lots of Sufi stories uh, about him. And one day he goes out to uh, the marketplace, and uh, there's a, um, a good sale on uh, peppers. So he buys a barrel of peppers, such a good deal. And his students are sitting around as he's eating these peppers, and they're hot peppers. <laughs> puts, them, puts one in his mouth, chews it, his mouth is on fire. Mm. Finishes that one, picks another one, Choose it again, again, on fire, tears streaming down his face. Goes for another one, same thing. Finally, student, one student says, Molo, why are you keeping eating those peppers? They're hot. Your mouth is on fire. And he says, I keep waiting for a sweet one. <laughs> And that's what we, we do. We keep waiting for the sweet one, the one that's going to do it for us. No matter what the experience or the object, you know, oh, I get that new car. So cool. I'm going to be so happy. And it's good for a little while. Until that very first Nick not new anymore. And then after a while, <coughs> oh, it's an old car. I think I need another new car. Or when I find the right person, I just know my life is going to be clear sailing. And for about 18 months while the dopamine is going and shooting through, <laughs> yeah, this is fantastic. And then it's, oh, who is this person <laughs> decided I'd live my life with? You know? And I, I have to say, I'll just add uh, that I'm in a very good relationship. We've been together for uh, 34 years, now 32 married. 
And the dopamine wore off after a while. Um, and its relationships are work. And they're really worth it, especially if both people can um, are aligned in values and are uh, um, using the relationship to grow. Uh, but it's, it's work, and it's hard. And think of how many people in the United States, I think it's over 50% of marriages end in divorce. Isn't that amazing? Two people finding each other saying, yes, I love you, and then it changes. It's work if you see it as an ongoing living organism, uh, then, then it can grow and deepen and the commitment and keep on transforming. Um, but that initial hit doesn't last. So there's the desire, there's um, uh, sense desire, a second kind of um, uh, wanting that the Buddha spoke of is uh, um, is um, that just threw me off. <laughs> is the the attachment to ideas and opinions, our views, attachment to views. It's amazing how attached we get to our view. I'm right. If everybody else else would only see it the way I do everything would be okay. We don't realize that we are all walking around with our own reality that <clears throat> makes complete sense to us, and so is everybody else walking around in their reality that makes sense to them. Attachment to views and opinions, wars, greed, all the conflicts in the world <clears throat> because people have their ideas <coughs> and their views and aren't able to see another reality. <clears throat> the third attachment is attachment to spiritual forms. As the, the Buddha called it, attachment to rites and rituals. My meditation, my religion, my, uh, uh, my brand of Buddhism, you know, I'm, I'm a Theravadan, I'm a Vajrayana, I have the supreme vehicle, I have the great vehicle, I said it in, uh, in, one, of the, in one of the groups, uh, those are the different, their names, different, the, the uh, supreme Vehicle, Vajrayana, Mahayana, Greater Vehicle, and Theravada is sometimes called the Hinayana, Lesser Vehicle, for, by the other two, uh, pejoratively. Uh, and this, this one friend said, Lesser Vehicle, Greater Vehicle, all vehicles will be towed at owner's expense. <laughs> <laughs> We can get very attached to my way when really all the spiritual forms are pointing to what is beyond 
comprehension, as I said in, in that group. Uh, the word God, my understanding, at least in the Jewish religion, is a placeholder for that which cannot be named, the unnameable, the ineffable, the undescribable. But again, people kill each other over different versions of God. Isn't that strange? My God is better than your God. Who's up there? <laughs> and yet we fight and kill each other over it. Think of how much war and cruelty and hatred is happening right now in our world because people have their own concepts, different concepts of God or their own religion as opposed to another. The Buddha said, don't be attached to spiritual form. They're all just skillful means. Use the skillful means, but don't be attached to the form. Like uh, the image of pointing, a finger pointing to the moon. That's the, uh, the moon is the symbol of enlightenment in, in Buddhism, a full moon. And so the finger pointing to the moon is the, uh, are the teachings that point there. Somebody going out on a full moon night and sees somebody else pointing and looking at the finger and saying, oh, that is quite a beautiful finger. <laughs> Not seeing what they're pointing to, that's a bit like my religion is the right one and everybody else's isn't. Not seeing, tasting for yourself what all the great religions are pointing to, something that's a direct experience of what I call the mystery. So that's a third area of attachment. Fourth area is attachment to the concept of self, of who we think we are. And I started to point to this uh, yesterday when I invited you to think of yourself as a verb instead of a noun. We are, we think that we are some solid entity and because we separate ourselves out, we uh, then have something to protect and get approval and aggrandize and validate our worthiness. And when you see through that, when you see through the solidity of who you think of who we think we are and see the impersonal process, the selflessness of this process called me, then our relationship to everything around changes. And that is what the meditation directly points to. As I said earlier, there you are sitting and you notice a sound, you notice a breath, you notice a thought, you notice a sensation, you notice a mood, just continually transforming and there's no one place in there that you can point to and say, that's me, that's the essence of me, because you are a verb, a field of activity. That 
dramatically shifts your perspective. It doesn't mean that you are not who you are. A, a, a very organized <coughs> pattern of life, but you are not a static, fixed being. You are in continual growth. And so you play at the game of being James or wh- whoever you are, but you see there's a whole other way of holding, holding it all. And that is really the, uh, the gem of the teachings, to see through this idea of self. So that's the second truth. Cause of suffering is wanting and attachment to sense pleasures, to ideas and opinions, to spiritual views, and to the very concept of self. That led him to the third truth. If the cause of suffering is attachment, the end of suffering is letting go. And he said it's possible to have the most profound letting go, transformative letting go, where you are no longer swept away by your craving and wanting. And that is a mind that's free. And it's not so easy to do. We are continually trapped in our wanting and craving or attempt to be on top of life and control it. And I I think I mentioned this the other night. uh, A a very simple, effective illustration to show this predicament that we're in is that of uh, a monkey trap that's used uh, in many countries in Asia where there are monkeys, not, not just the kookaburros that sound like monkeys, they're actually there. And they can tear up the fields and the, the crops. And, and so um, people devise this trap by taking a coconut and cutting off one end, hollowing it out, tying it to a stake, and in the bottom uh, of the coconut put in a lot of sweets. Monkey comes along, smells the sweets. When it slips its hand in to get the sweets, the hole is big enough to slip its hand in, but when it grabs a fistful of sweets, it's too small to get its hand out. Knows that it's in trouble, can start to panic. All it has to do is let go of the sweets, slip its hand out, and it's free. It's a very rare monkey that figures that out. (laughs) (laughs) And that pretty much is the predicament that we're in. Unless you can see and understand and know better, even when you can see, it takes a lot of practice. But when you can't, we're bound by thinking, oh, this will make me happy, this will make me happy, this next thing will make me happy, (coughs) or I've got to stay on top of my life and keep it all together, or else all hell is going to break loose. You ever notice how exhausting it is to try and keep your life together? (laughs) Whereas if you can let go 
of that control that you never had in the first place, you can actually respond so much more effectively to the situation because you're not in the throes of that contracted mind that's based in fear and grasping and wanting. So this is the third truth of letting go. And in that, in that letting go, there are a number, there's different levels of this letting go. The most profound is what the Buddha understood under that Bodhi tree. The complete freedom of mind. And as I said the other night, his beautiful line, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible. And it just so happens that short of complete awakening, that every moment that you're mindful is a moment of freedom and it also is creating the conditions for that deeper, profound, transformative awakening. That's the amazing discovery. He didn't only free his mind, he saw, oh, this is how it can be done by anyone, especially those with a little dust covering their eyes. Ah, in the moment of mindfulness, like we did with the hand moving back and forth, Ah, a moment where there's not anything that you need to add or take away. A moment where you're not lost in your story. A moment where there's a fullness and completeness right here, right now. And that moment where there's not grasping at the pleasant, aversion with the unpleasant, or confusion identifying with experience is a moment that is undercutting the habits of greed, hatred, and delusion. And those moments more and more purify the mind and the heart and lead to that possibility of the deepest kind of freedom. It's true. It works. So he said, that's third truth, the end of suffering is possible. That led him to the fourth truth, which is the way, the prescription to actually more and more come into harmony and see clearly and free the mind. And it is called sometimes the middle way or the middle path, and it is also called the noble eightfold path. And you might say, oh my goodness, we just got through four noble truths. <laughs> Eight more things. I said there's a lot of lists in, the, in these teachings. I won't go into all of them in, in detail now, but I'll just give you a, a broad overview of the Eightfold Path. One area has to do with um, wisdom, one area has to do with our relationships, and one has to do with the mind training. The area of wisdom is wise or right understanding, and 
right or wise thought, also wise intention, thought intention, interchangeable. The word right is used before all of these, right thought, right understanding, but don't let the word right trip you up because it can easily sound like right and wrong. Right is, the actual translation is skillful or uh, wise, conducive to, uh, to freedom. So wise understanding, wise thought. Wise understanding is understanding these basic truths that there's suffering and the cause of suffering is, is wanting and that there's an end of suffering. <coughs> also understanding that um, some basic understanding of the law of karma, that there's a law of cause and effect, that if you practice anger, you will get to be very good at it. If you practice loving kindness, you will probably become kinder. Just like if you practice the piano, you'll get better at it. What we frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of our minds. And he said, actions have consequences. If we are causing suffering, we will be creating suffering for ourselves. If we are uh, not causing suffering and we are uh, the cause of happiness, that will bring us happiness as well. So, wise understanding. Second, wise thought or wise um, intention. And very simply, it's understanding the nature of thoughts. Our thoughts, with our thoughts we create the world. With our thoughts we make the world. That line that I mentioned earlier from the Dhammapada. Everything comes out of our mind. And we have one thought, and we're affected one way, another thought, another way. Just a, a simple little exercise. Uh, we're coming to the home stretch, but just a simple exercise on, on this wise thought. Close your eyes for a moment, and I'll say a word, and notice what happens inside. Trouble. Trouble. Notice any images, associations, feelings, trouble. Okay, I won't leave you here. Take a nice breath, clean the board in your mind, erase the board, and here's another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice what goes on in there. Notice how it feels. Notice any associations, images, kindness. Okay, you can open your eyes. Did you notice any difference between the two? Two words plucked out of my mind, plopped into yours, and there's probably quite a, a reaction. Now just think of what it's like if you keep on replaying certain thoughts over and over, <coughs> like, what if? Or, oh no, I can't believe I did that. Or, why did that so-and-so? And you just keep on replaying that. If those two words had that effect, 
just get a sense of the power of our thoughts. So he said, notice your thoughts and train yourself so that you are leading to more well-being and happiness. Now you might think, oh, that means I just have to get rid of all the unpleasant thoughts and only have nice thoughts. Good luck. <laughs> That's not how it works. And in fact, as you've probably seen, the more you try to get rid of an unpleasant thought, it's there. So the idea, and what we're learning here, is to see the thoughts coming and going and seeing how empty they are. <coughs> and then we have a choice which thoughts to give energy to and which thoughts to just let fly by. But it takes practice not to jump on each thought as it goes. This is wise or right thought, and when it becomes wise intention, you see, okay, I want to go for well-being and happiness. I'm going to feed the thoughts that face me in the right direction. And that then leads to the next three, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And basically, that is a simple principle. If we want inner peace, we don't cause harm. Because causing harm will disturb our minds and our hearts. Causing harm intentionally. There's no way you can avoid, there's no way you can please everybody. But intentionally causing harm, which a lot of people in this world get caught in, and even we might from time to time get back at people or wish them ill, it has a reverberating effect. And he said, if you want inner peace, be watchful of your speech, be mindful of your actions, and let your livelihood be one that um, is, um, is healthy and either serves or doesn't cause harm. He says, very simply, looking at those five precepts that, that Jill led the, the first night. Not because you're trying to be some kind of saint or holy person, but just because on a very pragmatic level, we want inner peace. And that then leads to the, the last of these um, three baskets, um, the practice, wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And I spoke about those last night. Remember in the, um, in the talk on the five faculties, how effort to be mindful leads to mindfulness and a momentum of mindfulness leads to concentration. And that leads to wisdom. So why, what we're doing here is training our minds and our hearts to see clearly and then we become an expression of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and there's one story, I'll, I'll end this here, one story about uh, this monk in the time of the Buddha who was having a hard time remembering all the rules. Because for a monk, there's 227 major rules that you're supposed to keep. And this guy had a hard time. He wasn't so 
so good at remembering in the first place. And he was just really have, uh, ready to leave. And the Buddha saw that he was having a hard time and he said, hard to remember all these rules, huh? He says, yeah, it's just so much, it's too much. And the Buddha said, can you remember one rule? The guy got really excited. <laughs> one rule I can do. And he said, just be mindful. Because if you're mindful, you see for yourself what is leading to suffering, what leads to happiness, and you are waking up in the very process of seeing clearly. So that's why all of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are, um, are rooted in being more conscious, waking up, being present one moment at a time. And that leads to that freedom that the Buddha was talking about. So there's the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering. There is a cause of suffering. <coughs> attachment, the wanting mind, there is an end to suffering, and there is a path leading to the end of suffering. And that is amazingly, gratefully, good karmically, what we've all fallen into. We're doing it. We're those with a little dust covering our eyes. And the more we do it, the more we become agents of that consciousness. So, not even to take pride in saying, hey, I have a little dust covering my eye. <laughs> but rather, what an incredible opportunity it is to wake up. Uh, a joyful responsibility, as, as one uh, inspiring friend of mine says. This is what we're doing right now. So, let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.